Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to go through Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38, as we discuss the dedication, or I should say the purification ceremony that Jesus went through in the temple when Joseph and Mary took him from Bethlehem up four miles north to Jerusalem to have the ceremony. We start in verse 22 in Luke, and we will not have to go to parallel passages here because it's only in Luke, it's only in Luke that we have this story. We'll start with verse 22, chapter 2. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now notice it's their purification that was supposed to make both the mother and the son clean, but Jesus had no sin. So what does he need to get purified for? Why does he need to go through the ceremony? Well, to identify with sinful mankind, that's why. Just like he didn't need to go through the baptism with John the Baptist, because baptism signifies purification from sin. Jesus had no sin. Yet, nonetheless, he got baptized. So that's why he went through the ceremony, to show that in every way he identified with suffering sinful humanity. And Mary, of course, had to be purified too. Now, some people have brought up the fact that if Mary is sinless, according to the Catholics, why did she need to go through the purification ceremony? And one Catholic website I noted said this is easy to stomp. This objection is easy to stomp to a million little pieces. Well, actually, he's right because Jesus didn't need to get purified either, and yet he went through the ceremony. So if you believe that Jesus is sinless, and Mary is sinless, she doesn't need to go through the ceremony either, but she did just like Jesus. So that's not a good objection. However, Mary was not sinless. Well, you can take that. That is a Catholic fabrication that's a part of Catholic mythology. Now, what was the time of their purification? Well, it was 33 days from circumcision, which was on the eighth day. So it's about 40 days from the birth. And that's when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem. Now, this idea that babies needed to be purified from sin, of course, comes from original sin, the sin that originated in Adam and was passed from generation to generation, so that every baby born of the human race has sin when he's born. And so this temple ritual helped emphasize that fact to the Jews. We're sinners at the moment of conception, as in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was formed in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Yes, you were born. That sweet little cherub-like infant smiling and gurgling and cooing, he or she was born in sin. And they're sinners. I, don't you love it how churches that baptize infants, they'll dress them in these white little robes to, to symbolize purity. That baby's not pure, but the robes ought to be red, scarlet, like sin. All right, so we go to verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And consecrated means dedicated to the Lord. Holy, in other words, holy to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord. This is in, well, it's in three places in the law, Exodus 13, Numbers 3, and Numbers 18. I'm going to quote the passage from Exodus 13, verses 13b through 15. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And, of course, redeem means to buy out of bondage. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. 
all the males, that means all the animals, everything that's male, it has to be sacrificed to the Lord. But you can't sacrifice the son, firstborn son, so you have to redeem that son. You give money instead of, instead of putting him on an altar and burning him. You give money. You redeem him. Now, what was the purpose of the law? When God killed the firstborn males of Egypt, he saved the firstborn of Israel. And so God had a claim on the firstborn male of Israel. The parents acknowledged that claim. The parents acknowledged that they owed God their lives, the kids' lives, by paying five shekels to redeem the child from owing God death. It, this shows that the baby was redeemed from the curse and death that the Egyptian babies were subject to. Now, this is ironic. It's ironic that a redemption price was paid for the Redeemer of all mankind. He's going to redeem all mankind, sin by shedding his blood on the cross, by paying life, by giving his life for our lives. Life is in the blood. He gave his blood. Therefore, we don't have to die. He redeems us from our sin. He redeems us from death. So the Redeemer went through a redemption ceremony. And again, Jesus went through a ceremony that was not entirely appropriate for a sinless human being, but he did it to identify with mankind, with sinful mankind. We go to verse 24 in Luke chapter 2. And to offer a sacrifice, this is still quoting the, this is still referring to the Old Testament law, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now this is the purification ceremony, the redemption part I just read in, in Exodus 13. Now this is how you get purified after the baby is redeemed. The purification ceremony is written in the relevant parts for a young son is written in Leviticus 12, verses 3 through 4 and 6 through 8. And I'll read it now. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. If you recall from the last audio, Jesus has already been circumcised on the eighth day. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. 33 days plus seven or eight days, seven, seven days, I guess, for the days before they were circumcised, this again depends on how you count the days, whether you include the eighth day or exclude it. But it's up, so 40 days since the baby was born. This is how old Jesus was when Joseph and Mary took her up to the temple, took him up to the temple. The blood of her purifying just means the blood that occurred that requires her to be purified. That's the afterbirth. Again, the law is very, um, very careful about preserving the Blood, for example, menstruation, you're unclean. You don't have sex with a menstruating wife because blood is in the life, and we want to emphasize that life is in the blood, and that blood is what has to be shed for the sacrifice for our sins. So it sort of emphasizes the separation or the holiness of blood, or I should say the unholiness of blood, actually, is the way you look at it. So so um, for 33 days, the Leviticus 12 continues, she shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed, until she stops bleeding. Verse 6, and when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering. A burnt offering was a whole burnt offering, an offering of praise, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for sin offering. That's to take away the sin, to symbol symbolically take away, to purify the, the baby and the mother from sin. Burnt offering, sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Atonement is a covering sacrifice, a propitiation to cover that sin. Then shall she be clean from the floor for blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So normally you, a parent or parents offered a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. When I say turtle dove or pigeon, it's either one. 
the birds almost alike to me. Pigeons kind of have a worse, at least where I'm from, pigeons always flop into the eaves of city buildings and small towns and poop all over the pavement, so they don't quite have the same the same connotation as a dove, the same feeling that a dove gets you. A dove stands for peace, but really the birds are very similar to one another. So this shows that Mary and Joseph were poor because they couldn't afford a lamb for a burnt offering, so they had to offer either a turtle dove or a pigeon for a burnt offering. And then, of course, the sin offering stays the same. It's a bird. Either way, whether you're rich or poor, you offer a turtle dove slash pigeon for a sin offering. So they offer those two, and that shows that they were poor. God, however, took care of their needs because, remember, they received rich presents from the wise men who came from the east in Matthew 2.11. We, three kings, of Orient are, which is not in the Bible, but, you know, the song represents what happened. These wise men came from Egypt, and they brought frankincense and myrrh and valuable stuff. It's a good thing, too, because Joseph had to leave his job in Nazareth to go down to Bethlehem to have the birth, and then he had to flee to Egypt from Jerusalem when Herod tried to kill the babies, the slaughter of the innocents. So they had to have money to live on, and they, I'm sure they lived on the gifts of the wise men. Even though they were poor, God took care of them. We go to verse 25. We're going to now discuss how Simeon and Anna both met Jesus in the temple where the purification ceremony took place. In the temple area. I don't, it's not in the temple building, I don't think. I think it's in the, in the, in the courtyard there. I, was, I wasn't able to find exactly where that ceremony took place. I looked, but I couldn't find it. So we'll just say it's somewhere in the temple courtyard. Luke 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're going to see later he gives a prophecy. When the Holy Spirit is upon someone, that's usually an indication that a prophecy is about to be given. The consolation of Israel was a Jewish name for the Messiah. So he was waiting for the Messiah. All devout Jews in general were waiting for the Messiah, but Simeon may have had special reason to be anticipating the Messiah. Remember, there are rumors concerning the coming of the Messiah everywhere now. The news of John the Baptist's birth, which was about six months earlier, that was widely publicized. If you recall in Luke chapter 1, verse 65, the news spread all around the hill country of Judah. And then in Luke chapter 2, we have the shepherds in their fields at night, they heard the angelic announcement that the Messiah was born, and they went and they told a group of unidentified people in Luke chapter 2, verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In other words, when they saw the angels, they went around and told everybody, told some people about what the angels had said. And there's another interesting idea, too. They may have been keeping the temple flocks for the sacrifices in the temple. So they might have gone and reported to the people of the temple. They could say, here's some sheep for sacrifice. And by the way, did you hear what I, do you want to know what I saw? I saw an angel announcing the birth of the Messiah. And then a whole angelic host appeared singing glory to God in the highest. So the word's going around. And if you are a type of person, a devout, righteous and devout Jew, like Simeon was, it says here in Luke 2.25, if you are righteous and devout, you're going to be looking for the Messiah. And the word has gotten out. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Luke chapter 2, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Lord had told him, you're not going to die, Simeon. He was a prophet. You're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. And that means the Lord's anointed. Christ means anointed, of course. And anointed, who's anointed? A prophet's anointed, a priest is anointed, and a king's anointed. So Jesus had been anointed by his father to be king of Israel and his church, as well as a prophet and a priest. And Simeon knows he's already been told by the Holy Spirit he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah, the Christ, and he also is hearing the talk of the angel of the, uh, of, of the, uh, 
of the news about John the Baptist floating around for about six months now, and now all of a sudden we have the report of, possibly the report of the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 27 through 32. And he, that Simeon, came by the Spirit into the temple. So he's led by the Spirit. He's going to give a prophecy by the Spirit, and he's also led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. That means depart this to shuffle off this mortal coil, to leave this life in peace according to thy word. Because he was told he would not die until he saw the Messiah. So he saw the Messiah. And he knew it was the Messiah. And the Lord led him to be there right when Joseph and Mary show up with a kid. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Joseph. The Simeon continues. Which you have prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now you notice that, that Simeon is talking about salvation not only for the people of Israel but for a light to lighten the Gentiles, a salvation for everybody, not just Israel. That was an idea that the early Jews had trouble with. But prophetically, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's Gentiles as well as Israel is going to get this salvation. And, of course, Jesus means salvation. From eyes of senior salvation, which you have prepared. How has God prepared? You know, he had, God had to do a lot of stuff to get Jesus crucified on the cross to save his people. He had to have John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, who prepared the way of the Lord, prepared, which you have prepared for the face of all people, Simeon says, and John the Baptist prepared the way. And then, of course, he had to prepare, Jesus, God had to prepare Mary to have the virgin birth. He had to bring her down to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. A lot of stuff's got to be going on because God works out of salvation in history. He doesn't just wave a wand and bang, you're going to get saved. No, things have got to be worked out in history, things both good and bad. Now, notice how prominent the Holy Spirit is during the events surrounding Jesus' birth. I've just mentioned that Simeon was led by the Spirit in the temple, and it doesn't say that he prophesied according to the Holy Spirit, but it's obviously a prophecy, as we'll get into in the next couple of verses, when he specifically prophesies things such as that Mary's going to be pierced with a sword. So he's prophesying by the Holy Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. And notice how prominent the Holy Spirit is during the other events surrounding Jesus' birth. For example, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit when Jesus was conceived in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit when she saw Mary pregnant with Jesus when Mary came down to Jerusalem to visit her in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit when he prophesied about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. So Elizabeth, Mary, Zacharias all had to be led by the Holy Spirit to receive their incredible blessings. So likewise, Simeon had to be led by the Spirit in the temple to receive his blessing. And here's an application point here. Likewise, if we are to receive the blessing of God, we must be led by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is being prepared by the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people, as I just mentioned. It just doesn't happen automatically. Now, being led by the Spirit is the most important thing a Christian can do. If he does, he will bring salvation, light, joy to himself, his family, his friends, and the world in general. Now here is another, this is another, shall I say, application point. We are not led by the Holy Spirit apart from the Bible. Now, there is this horrible dichotomy in the body of Christ. There are those the pietist and charismatic Pentecostal type people who love to talk about being led by the Holy Spirit and they hadn't read the Bible in 20 years. And then there's the crypto-deist intellectual nerd teaching types. They talk about, oh, being led by the Spirit, that's just emotionalism. We've just got to read the Bible. We're led by the Holy Spirit when we read the Bible. The Holy Spirit never tells us anything apart from the Bible. That is a horrible dichotomy. First of all, some things aren't in the Bible. Like, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? It's a dedicated Christian. She's a sweet woman. 
I can't see anything wrong with it, but I'm still not sure whether she, it's my will. Well, I get, should I pray that the Holy Spirit lead me? Well, not according to some of these nerd types. It's both and, folks. It's the Holy Spirit and the Bible, not either or. Notice that when Zacharias promised, prophesied of the Holy Spirit, going back to the part that, to the point that we are not led by the Holy Spirit apart from the Bible, when Zacharias gave his great prophecy concerning John the prophet, John the Baptist, he mentioned two prominent Old Testament scriptural events or prophecies. First of all, he mentioned the oath made to Abraham, the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15:7, Luke chapter 1, verse 72 through 73. This is in Zacharias's prophecy. Zacharias says this, picking him up midstream, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That's the famous Abrahamic promise of Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Zacharias also mentions the prof prophecy that was given to David by Nathan, which is inscripturated in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Here's the quote that Zacharias gives, Luke 1, 69 through 70. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So the holy prophets were written down in the scriptures, and Zacharias appeals to that, as he's led by the Holy Spirit. There's no dichotomy. If you're led by the Holy Spirit, you will know the scripture. Jesus knew the scripture. He quoted it up, down, sideways, and backwards, starting from the age of 12. But he was also led by the Holy Spirit. All right, so let me make this point one more time about Simeon's prophecy that Jesus would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Gentiles as well as Israel. The old Israel, the Jews, the new Israel, the Jews plus the Gentiles, the church of Jesus Christ, which now covers the entire globe. He mentioned that. He mentioned the Gentiles. And that's very, that was very hard for the early New Testament church to understand. But there it is right there in the gospel. The early New Testament church had to be shaken loose of that idea that, of their idea that salvation was only for the Jews. Luke chapter 2 verse 33. And the child's mother and father were amazed at what was being said about him, about Jesus. Joseph is called father here, even though he was technically not the baby's father. What would you call him? Could you call him a stepfather? He's not a foster father because legally he was married to the mother, you know, but he's not really a stepfather either, so he's just a special kind of father. He's the only kind of father that's been like this in the history of the world. But he's still called father. He took the place. He performed fatherly functions for Jesus. He helped raise him. We shouldn't overlook that. And, of course, the child's mother and father were amazed at what was being said about him. They'd already had Joseph had the birth announced to him by probably by Gabriel. Mary had Gabriel show up to her. So they'd already had angelic visitations. They already had the shepherds come to him and said, hey, we're looking for the Messiah. And so now they're realizing this baby's not just for us. This is for the whole world, the Jews as well as the Gentiles. And they're just simple country people, remember? A carpenter and a, and a country woman. They're being told all these amazing things. Now, it's one thing to know for yourself that you're parents of the Messiah, but it's quite another thing to know that the Holy Spirit is moving other people to know that you are the parents of the Messiah. So, Joseph and Mary have already had the shepherds. Now they've had Simeon come to them and tell them that they have the Messiah. That, but God is still not through in giving them witness because Anna is going to come in just a minute. We're going to talk about Anna. And then in another passage later on, the wise men are going to come and offer homage to the Savior of the world. It's a pretty amazing thing. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 through 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, and when he said, this is a prophecy, Quote, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
How was Jesus to be a falling and rising for many in Israel? Was Simeon's prophecy correct? It certainly was. Jesus, in many ways, is a great divider. He's a great uniter when it comes to people in his kingdom. He brought the hearts of the children back to the fathers, as John the Baptist prophesied. But, however, he creates sharp division between those in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. For example, Peter repented. Judas fell away. That's a big division between Peter and Judas. Peter goes to glory. Judas, Judas goes to hell. That's a division. How about one thief dying on the cross blaspheming him, but the other thief repents? That's a big division. Jesus himself said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, Matthew 10, verse 34. Remember, he said, I'm going to bring mother against daughter, father against son. There's a big division between people who believe and people that don't. And I think there's hardly a Christian in the world that never has not felt that division when their loved ones don't accept Christ, but they do. So the child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. The falling is the people who don't believe in him. The rising is the church, the people who do believe in him. So the little baby in the manger one day will fight and defeat his enemies. And that Jesus is no longer a little baby. We need to remember that. Baby Jesus, that's over with. He is now the all-conquering Christ. And he is going to call many, many people to fall. And it is a terrible and horrible thing to fall in the hands of, of Jesus, the stumbling block. who was, was a stumbling block for Israel. Make peace with him before it's too late. He's not just a little baby anymore. Now, Simeon said he's a sign that will be opposed. Literally in the Greek, it's a target that will be shot at. He will be a target that will be a shot that will be shot at, which I think is a pretty. The literal translation is better than the the non-literal one here. Remember, if Jesus' enemies hate the master, they will hate his disciples. So when Jesus is going to get shot at, we're going to get shot at too. It's unfortunate, but remember, there's an eternal weight of glory waiting for us at the end. And Jesus said that if you're persecuted in this life, if you give up lands and houses for the kingdom, you're going to get back in this life, as well as persecution, lands and houses too. Not to mention what you're going to get in heaven. So we need to remember that. There's bad news, but there's also good news. Now, Simeon says that Jesus will reveal the inner thoughts of many in verse 35, Luke chapter 2. What does that mean? Well, when people are confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ, they can't hide what they think. Either they will accept him or become his enemy. There's no neutral ground of Jesus. There's no neutral ground. He's not just a good teacher. Well, if he was a good teacher, he was a lunatic because he claimed to be God. Good teachers don't claim to be God. He was either a lunatic or he was a liar or he was the son of God. You can't escape that logic. Now... The inner thoughts that are revealed, some inner thoughts were good. And it's interesting, bad people sometimes had good thoughts. For example, tax collectors like Matthew, he revealed his thoughts. I want to follow the Messiah. Harlots like allegedly Mary Magdalene was. A lot of people say that. I'm not so sure. Just because she was from Magdalene, which is noted for a prostitution, people say that she was a prostitute too. But the scripture never says that, but tradition does. So let's say she's a, a prostitute. She revealed her heart. She followed Jesus to the end. She was the first person to see him risen from the dead. She loved him so much. Her inner thoughts were revealed. How about the thief on the cross? He was a robber. His inner thought was revealed. He wanted to repent as he was dying on the cross. So these bad people reveal their inner desire to know Jesus. And how about bad thoughts being revealed by quote-unquote good people, civically righteous people like the Pharisees, the scribes, and the rulers, those who reveal their murderous thoughts when Jesus confronted them and finally they said, crucify him. They got the crowd to yell, crucify him. They were murderers. So there was no neutral ground, and Simeon predicted that. He's going to reveal what people think, and you're not going to be able to hide it. You know, I think in First John, John talks about people who were of us, but if they were of us, they would, not, they would have gone out with us, but they didn't. Sooner or later, 
Your inner thoughts are going to be revealed. That's why, who was it, Paul said, lay hands not suddenly, don't lay hands suddenly on anybody. Why? If you want to have an elder of a church, just watch him for a while. Sooner or later, his inner thoughts about Jesus are going to be revealed. People always worry about, are people saved or not? Look at the fruit. Well, sometimes they bear a little bit of fruit, then sometimes they don't. Wait a little bit, and you're going to find out what makes them tick. You might not be able to know exactly whether they're a woefully backslidden Christian or whether they're pagan from the front. People debate that till the cows come home. I, I don't know, but I do know this. Jesus eventually will reveal your inner thoughts. Now, we notice that Simeon predicted that a sword would pierce Mary's soul, too. Well, obviously, that's referring to the fact that she is going to be pierced with grief when Jesus was killed on the cross. And this is really sort of sad in the midst of all this joyous prophecy that Simeon's given. He mentions the bad news. This is really bad news for a mother to see her son hanging naked on a cross, spit upon, abused as a criminal, in physical torture. I can't imagine how bad that was. No, I don't think anybody can imagine how bad that was. Simeon prophesied it. So it was a great burden as well as a great privilege to be the mother of the Messiah. Possibly no other human being suffered over her son's rejection and suffering as Mary did. I can't imagine it. Go to verses 36 through 38 and we'll finish up this audio. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess. Now Simeon was not called a prophet, but he obviously was. Anna is explicitly called a prophetess. She's the daughter of Phanuel. We don't know anything more about him. Of the tribe of Asher. Asher is the tribe on the northwest of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. She was of a great age and lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, which is the most confusing way of saying this. So here's how, you, how it is. She was married as a young woman and when she was a virgin. She lived with her husband for seven years, and then he died. And so she was a widow from a relatively young age of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fasting and prayers day and night. So Simeon was waiting for the Messiah, the scripture says in Luke, and Anna was fasting and praying every day. So she was a spiritual person just like Simeon was. So she was a spiritual woman. Not everybody, of course, is spiritual. But these two were spiritual. Verse 38, and coming in that instant, she again, I'm sure, was led by the Holy Spirit just like Simeon was, and she ran into Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, notice she didn't speak to everybody. She speak to those who look for redemption in Israel. There's always a remnant looking for the next thing on God's spiritual agenda, and that was the coming of the Messiah. And there were people who were looking for the Messiah. And she talked to them. She didn't cast her pearls before pigs and just talk to anybody. She talked to people who were looking. Most people, of course, are too busy looking for money, status, power, you know, the typical things that Americans love to do. And I'm assuming all human beings love to do, including the ancient Jews. So she didn't just enjoy Jesus for herself. She went out and spread the good news, which is something we can't emphasize enough. I mean, if we believe that Jesus died for our sins, we ought to be going out there telling people about it as much as possible. I don't care even if it's in America where everybody's hard-hearted about it. There's some people who are going to believe if you'll just tell them. Now, notice how the word, the idea of redemption to Israel, the Messiah, is coming. Those who look for redemption, why would they be looking, especially now? Well, again, because of the events of John the Baptist's birth, which had spread all around the hill country of Judea. An angel appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and predicted, and gave, and, he, and Zacharias gave a prophecy, said the Messiah was coming. Well, that's, that would make people want to look for the Messiah, if you cared about it. Then, and maybe she had gotten word of the shepherds. Uh, their vision of the angels, she might have heard that, or, or Anna might have heard it, but also people in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, might have heard it too, and so they're they're excited about what's about to happen, and Anna's going around talking to them and encouraging their excitement. 
All right, we're finished with this dedication of Jesus in the temple, the purification ceremony. Next audio, Jesus is going to return to Nazareth, back to his hometown. I hope you enjoyed this audio.